the Lord God himself who created you is not surprised. He's not somewhere else. He's not indifferent. He's not trite. He's not a simpleton. He's not a fool. He is wise and he loves you. friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm thankful you're here to join in on today's conversation with pastor and author Zach Eswine. In today's episode, Pastor Zach shares some of his personal experiences with depression, wise and unwise ways to approach loved ones who are suffering from despondency, the gift of Scripture's language for our sorrows, as well as biblical comfort and clarity for those walking through seasons of darkness. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Zach Eswine serves as pastor of Riverside Church, resident scholar for the Francis Schaeffer Institute, and director of homiletics at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He cultivates life in Webster Groves, Missouri with his wife, Jessica, and four children. So Zach, I would love to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Christine. It's a delight to be with you today. I am really looking forward to today's discussion, and we are just going to go right out the gate with a very common, sometimes confusing question, uh, especially in church culture. And so I want to ask you, how would you answer the question, can Christians experience depression? That's such a deep and tender question, and my answer would be yes, Christians can experience depression. And the reason is because the Bible sets in front of us people who loved God and who experienced depression. So now there's a, there's a great deal to say about what depression is and the various aspects of it and nuances of it. But as you walk through the scriptures, Job or the psalmist, David, other psalms that are given to us, like Psalm 77, Psalm 88, or Elijah, or our Lord Jesus, as Charles Spurgeon, the, the great pastor and preacher, pointed out, our Lord Jesus, Spurgeon said, experienced mental depression in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we just have uh, language from the scriptures themselves and people who show us what it's like to uh, feel the intensity and pain of dark sorrows in their life. I think that that has really come across in your book, Spurgeon's Sorrows. And the way that you weave in the experience that Charles Spurgeon had in his own life with crippling depression, and the way that you write about it and communicate it to those who are reading really comes from a place, it seems like, where you have personally been affected by depression. Could you talk a little bit more about that? How has depression affected your life personally and perhaps even how it has impacted the lives of those that you pastor? Yes. Well, you know, Spurgeon himself gave sort of three sources of depression. You know, there was a, a spiritual kind of depression. There's a depression that comes from circumstances in our life, trauma that we've experienced, and depression that uh, comes from our body as a part of the fallen world and our in our the makeup of our body. And I'd say that I certainly have a temperament that's m more melancholy and 
the strength of that is certainly able to see dark things and imagine uh, difficult things that people go through. But it also means that I can uh, get fixed upon seeing what's dark and sad as well. And then what intensifies that is just circumstances in my life, a number of of uh, relational challenges um, of having grown up in a broken home, like so many of us, you know, uh, my, uh, I grew up in a home with three divorces and five marriages. And so that in itself and all that comes with it, as everyone tries to navigate that kind of scenario, brings with it lots of different kinds of pains. And so circumstances in my own life, and, and I experience anxiety. So anxiety and depression are different, as you may know, and Anxiety is something I experience a great deal and can have seasons of anxiety attacks where it just feels like, you know, you're either going to, your whole body is reacting in flight mode as if there's danger and you you feel like you're going to either die or pass out or go crazy. And of course, you're not going to do either one of those things in that moment. It's, it's your whole body signaling for you that uh, you are feeling threat and so that combination of depression and anxiety for me has been so humbling, and it, it's opened my eyes to parts of the Scripture as you look to God and see what He would say. And I hope it's helped me experience something of our Lord's empathy for the downcast and the weary and the heavy laden. You know, sometimes when we're going through those seasons of depression or anxiety, uh, one of the things that can maybe exasperate it or, or just make it a little bit more a burdensome experience is the reactions that we get from the people who we turn to for help or the people who are observing how we are walking and that, you know, we've been melancholy for seemingly no apparent reason for maybe weeks or even months. And yeah. it's just this temptation that, that people have when they watch that to, you know, just, well, buck up and just flip a switch and you'll be, you know, just yeah. remember you have hope. It's like, well, I know I have hope, but I'm, it's just, I can't imagine it right now. You know, we're yes. getting to yes. that fog where it's what, what we're experiencing and what we know in our heads is just not adding up. And that in and of itself as a Christian is so painful to know that I know these things about God. I know these things, you know, these truths, but I can't see them. I can't sense them. I can't touch them. I can't taste them. Everything that I am sensing does not align with the truth. I just know for me personally, that has been extremely uh, painful to walk through, but then also seeking help from the church community. And whether it's, you know, I think for the most part, it's not necessarily that people are meaning to be harmful in the things they say or, or do in response. But would you talk a little bit maybe about how the Bible would give us wisdom pertaining to ways we can help or approach people who are feeling depression. You know, in your book on Ecclesiastes, you, you talk a bit about the simpleton, and then there's the fool, and then there's the wise sage, and these are biblical categories. How would someone in the church who is a simpleton or a fool or a sage respond to someone walking through significant despondency or, or even anxiety? Yeah, we just experience a double wound, don't we? We we have the the darkness and sadness, the abyss, the dungeon, whatever it is for us, however we describe it. We have that, and then we have people, well-meaning folks, telling us just to have faith or uh, to look on the bright side. 
And why is it that we have a hard time weeping with those who weep? You know, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We struggle to weep with those who weep. Uh, and it, part of it is because as Christians, we're less familiar with the wisdom literature of the Bible. It might sound strange, but we're, we're more familiar with, uh, if we're a Christian in a Protestant church, we're more familiar with bits of the New Testament and the prophets, but we don't know a lot about the wisdom literature. And so Job and Job's friends, and it's an entire book in the Bible devoted to showing us harmful helpers, people who quote God rightly, but in all the wrong ways. And even though we have an entire book that shows us the misuse of help, we're unfamiliar with it. And so that's part of it. And as it relates to those wisdom literature categories, you might think of it this way, the simpleton or the naive, when we're tempted to that, we rob people of their tears by, instead of weeping with those who weep, we give trite slogans to those who weep. Or we get impatient and, and tell people to, here's some milk and cookies. Here's a, here's a nice day. Uh, you should be happy now. And so we rob people of their tears because of our own insecurity with them. We're afraid to go deep. We're afraid of an unfixed thing. We don't know how to trust God with something that's not fixed right away. We don't know how to trust God with when there's no immediate gratification. And so really, we're trying to tell a person to stop feeling sad so that we feel better. And uh, a simpleton does that. And a foolish person is a little different. They rob us of our tears too, but they do it with a reactivity, almost an anger, an emotional guilt trip. And uh, instead of weeping with those who weep, they admonish those who weep, or they try to correct those who weep, or they try to teach those who weep. And all of us just struggle to do this basic teaching uh, in Christianity, which is weep with those who weep. And uh, part of that I'm trying to suggest is we, those of us, so many of us are just earnest with the Lord. We're not, we don't want to hurt someone who's down in the darkness. We don't want to unwittingly contribute, you know, cooperate with the accuser of the brethren but we do, and a part of it is because we're just unfamiliar with these wisdom portions of the Bible. I think those categories are just so helpful because, you know, once you see them compared to each other, you you can almost recognize which one you tend towards. <laughs> which yeah. one do yeah. I, you know, which category do my reactions, you know, tend to fall into? And it's just, it's a good conviction, I think, just because it helps us to know where we do need to correct our handling of, of people's sufferings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Charles Spurgeon has the wonderful quote that you referenced in your Spurgeon Sorrows book, talking about this to some degree and just not having, you know, very much compassion or sympathy for people who are suffering from depression. And he says that we would feel more for the prisoner if we knew more about the prison of depression. Yeah. And so I want to ask you, how do you think that Psalm 88, if you could talk a little bit about what Psalm 88 is and how it can help Christians to understand the depths of pain and hopelessness that are experienced in seasons of despondency, you know, just what makes that Psalm unique? Well, that's such a good question because we could think of the Psalms as like a Spotify playlist or a, a music playlist. And some of the songs are their mood and their content have to do with joy and celebration and faith and strength. 
uh, gratitude. And but others, God has given to us uh, fit the category of a dark mood and despair. And the amazing thing about the Psalms or say Ecclesiastes is that because this is God's word, this is actually God giving us language, letting us know how to talk about this experience of depression and sorrow. Uh, and it's, it's a kindness from God that he would give us this kind of language. And so when you come to Psalm 88 on the song playlist, this, this is the song that gives us language, the poetry that gives us language for our sorrows. And the thing that's powerful about it, for the reasons we were just talking about, can be strange for a lot of us, is that it doesn't solve anything. And when the psalm ends, there's no happy ending. It's one psalm among the others. And so we know that there are happy endings sung about in other places. We know that that's part of the Christian life. But this psalm from God is his kind and tender reminder that some days, some seasons, we sing songs to him and we experience absence. We don't have answers. We feel as though we woke up in the morning, we cried out to God, and we go to bed at night if we can sleep at all, and it's just as dark as it was. And the fact that God in his word gives us a song like that, gives us language like that, not only shows us his kindness, but it also shows us his knowledge, his, his, his awareness that this is one of the many experiences of life in the fallen world. And by doing so, he lets us know that this is not a surprise and that we need not be alarmed. The Lord has given us a scenario here that if we find ourselves experiencing it, we know now how to cry out to him and we, we learn with him how to wait for him. And that's why a psalm like this or the story of Job or Ecclesiastes can be so helpful. And in this psalm, he also gives us language for the harmful helpers we were just talking about, the double wounds, because part of the language is even our friends don't get it and are hurting us. And the final thing that for our moment that's amazing about this psalm is just that this person with their depression continues to set it before the Lord. And even though they don't feel the Lord's presence, they set it before him. Now, if we were watching that as a movie, you know, we were watching someone in their living room cry out to a God they feel is absent and yet continue with tears and agony and a sense of despair to entrust all of that to the Lord, we would say that looks like faith. That looks like a person expressing faith. The person themselves doesn't feel that way at all. But anyone who can entrust their felt sense of God's absence to God as if he's present. It looks like ugly faith, but it's faith nonetheless. And actually a person that Psalm 88 expresses actually might have more faith. It takes more faith to do less. That person is, is taking more faith to deal with the prison that they feel Whereas I might, because I'm not having, if I hadn't experienced that kind of prison, I would say, oh, just, you know, just quote this verse. Here's two verses. Call me in the morning. It'll all be better. But then when I read this experience, I can sit back and say, oh, wow, God is teaching us through Psalm 88 about the desertion that some 
of his people will feel as they go through this life in the fallen world and what faith, ugly faith, looks and sounds like and how we can sing like this even when there's no happy ending or no tied up bow at the end. I think that's just so true. The, the ugly faith term, I just love that because it does take so much courage just to get up and take a shower is courageous for some people. You know, if you're a parent, just to get out of bed and put on your slippers and get the children to school on time is a sign of of courage because it's just, I'm showing up for my duties even though I feel like I've been hit by a five-ton anvil, you know, as the cartoons used to show. I want to ask you, just based on your personal experience and, and those you've pastored, what kinds of practical steps would you say someone could take to address the spiritual components and the physical components of their depression? Well, I love that you've asked the question that way, just because it assumes that God created us body and soul. And that that just to start there matters a lot. You know, if someone has a broken arm, we can see that their arm is in a cast. And because of that, we recognize, oh, uh, they can't type like they would have. Uh, Their routine through the day has to change. Everything has to slow down so that they can care for that arm. And we who are that person's friends take that into account as we relate to them. Well, depression is like having a broken arm but that no one can see. Or it's it's like having a disease inside of us, a, a wreckage inside of us that is debilitating, but no one can see it. And if we could see it, we would take steps, body and soul, for healing and help. Practically speaking, on the physical side of things, seeking a medical help with a medical doctor, taking a look at my nutrition, looking at my sleep patterns or lack of sleep patterns, exercise, uh, medicine, medicinal help, uh, being able to see God's creation, the physical world, uh, the physicality of a friend. Um, Charles Spurgeon even said that one of God's kindnesses was the lick of a dog, the, the, the kind lick of a dog on a dark day. And so this whole realm of the physical world that God's given us uh, that declares his glory is ours. That's why uh, seeing, uh, being put in a place of actual beauty in the physical world can ease our mind for a moment. And all of that goes alongside of the things that we would typically think of with prayer. But prayer is going to look different. You know, if you think about in, the, in Ecclesiastes, it says, you know, there's a time for everything. And there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to rejoice or be happy. There's a time for sorrow. So the question is, like, what is prayer and sermon listening and book reading like when it's a time to dance? And what does prayer, sermon listening, book reading like when it's a time to mourn? And being able to recognize and adjust that our prayers will feel ugly and they might just be one sentence and we're now more in the realm of Romans 8 with groanings too deep for words. And we're trusting the promises of Christ that we're not heard for our many words. And being able to listen to a sermon or being able to read something now comes in much smaller 
chunks. If we were in the hospital with a physical ailment and we knew we had to just chew on ice or we couldn't eat or we just had to eat the smallest amount of food because our bodies couldn't handle the food, everyone would understand that. Well, spiritually speaking, it can be the same way. We need to hear God's Word, but it will likely, our stamina, our ability for it will come in much smaller doses over a a period of time. And so sometimes, very practically, when I can't breathe, or when I can't sleep, or when uh, all I have seen is darkness, or an abyss, or I feel weighed down like something's on my chest and pressing in on there, I just have a one-sentence prayer. I just repeat the one-sentence prayer. And it could be something as simple as, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, you know, or, Lord, you are with me, Lord, you are with me. Or sometimes I have prayed, my breath belongs to you, Lord. You govern my breath. My breath belongs to you, Lord. I need to breathe, and you're the one who gives it. My breath belongs to you, Lord. And that's all I could pray, is just one bit of a truth from his word uh, about the thing I was going to. But I think that when that's happening, we really are doing that New Testament teaching of casting our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. It's just that there's a groaning too deep for words. It comes in smaller doses. And so we might need bigger doses of being outside in God's God's creation uh, with a company of friends and good rest and food. We might need bigger doses of that in God's world and smaller doses of a sermon or his word. And I know that can sound strange to some, but I'm following Charles Spurgeon here and recognizing that we're in God's world and he's given all of his uh, creation, uh, what theologians call general revelation, as well as his written word, which theologians call a special revelation. God's given all of that for our help and healing. And I would say I'm so surprised that you talked about Jesus helping you to breathe, because when I had a panic attack a couple of years ago, I hadn't had them for almost two decades, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. out of nowhere, it was very surprising. Yeah. But the only thing that I could pray, to, because once it starts, you just got to get through it. <laughs> There's just You just yes. ride it out like a wave. Je- yeah. And yeah. my prayer was, Jesus, be my heir. Like, I just didn't, there was nothing else I could do. Jesus be my heir. I don't know what else to say. (laughs) And I can't even say anything because I'm hyperventilating. So I'm just thinking. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, just the fact that you said that, I said, oh my goodness, the Lord, see, he does minister to us in every circumstance. He really, the Holy Spirit is there giving us even the prayers that we need in that moment. So it's just, it's such amazing grace. Well, let me ask you now, how did... You know, you talked a bit more about your experience just now. How did God's word minister to you as you traveled through despondency? So so to begin with, beginning to realize that Jesus is not an optimistic, how would I say this? Our Lord Jesus isn't an American. Like he, he doesn't, in the fullness of his humanity, he didn't speak English. He is not bothered by sadness or lack of productivity lack of efficiency the way I am as an American. And so coming to terms with who Jesus is, 
and untangling, continuing to untangle that from sort of American ways I've put upon him or Western things I've put upon him as a beginning. And the fact that he's called a man of sorrows has been a real help to me. And he's acquainted with grief. And so when he says there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is uh, weeping and sweating like blood. And Charles Spurgeon said that sometimes a person in depression, the, the crucifixion of Christ is not a help to them. Now, he certainly believes this ultimately, but experientially in the moment. And the resurrection of Jesus is not a help to them uh, because he seems far away. What is a help to them is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is there uh, left by his friends, alone, surrounded by darkness, accusation, devilishness, temptation, looking at death and crying out. And Spurgeon said that in that moment, uh, Jesus is not the one, he's not the general at the back of the army telling everyone else to go forward. In that moment, he's the general at the front of the army, and he's gone first. And he has entered depression and sorrow and anxiety and suffering and pain of soul before he enters the pain of body on the cross. And to, to see our man of sorrows in that way is our fellow friend. Spurgeon said it this way, sometimes it's our fellow friend in the Garden of Gethsemane that is of more help to us than even contemplating the cross or the resurrection in that moment because we realize that he's with us. And um, that brings a new meaning to Emmanuel, God with us. And so that's the a beginning, is beginning to see our Lord Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And that, that changes everything. Uh, he's not impatient with the hurting or the sorrowing. And he knows what it is to experience a fallen world. And then some of the folks that I've mentioned, the book of Job in particular and Ecclesiastes have been a real help to me. But I would say alongside Psalm 88, Psalm 77 is a psalm that I've revisited again and again and again because it gives us language for, uh, you know, when we remember God, we moan. And to see that that's not necessarily a statement of the absence of faith. It's a person of faith who could say that in a psalm to God a psalm being a prayer to God. I remember God and I moan. I meditate, but my spirit faints. I seek the Lord, but I refuse to be comforted. My soul can't be comforted. My eyelids, God, you hold open. I'm, that means he can't sleep. I'm so troubled, I can't speak. And then he starts to try to remember days gone by when the Lord seemed to be present with him. And now he looks into the current absence of God that he feels, and he begins to ask these questions, you know, has your love ended? Are your promises at an end? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Are you no longer compassionate? So just this psalm that gives us language uh, for moaning, even with God, even thinking about God hurts. And we raise all these questions in our sleeplessness. And then he says, I will appeal to this. And so he starts to choose to ponder the things of God as best he can. And what's amazing to me is that this man in his depression and his sorrow and pain and suffering 
he begins to meditate on the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And I, that's strange at first, you know, I, I, I just don't know why I would put my mind there. That's not what I would think about, but, but he does. And then this is another Psalm that doesn't end with a happy ending. It gives us hope of one, but the psalmist himself hasn't felt it yet. And he says that as he thinks back through that, the waters parting and the the people of Israel fleeing the Egyptians and going through the Red Sea, he says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's just saying that the way was through and the Lord was not present visibly. He wasn't seen. And yet uh, the Lord was with them and led them through. And the implication there is the psalmist, that's his hope, that the same God who was seemingly absent nonetheless was present and did lead them, but the way was through the waters. And I've just taken help and comfort from that. Lord, the only way is through and you're the one to take me there and to pray that again and again and to take hold of that has been a a help to me. And finally, Psalm 139 is often another place on my mind. If I should say that darkness has surrounded me, the darkness is as light to you, O Lord. I remember listening to you teach a bit on Psalm 77 a few years ago at an event, and that is the part about your way was through the sea, your path was through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen, has just stuck with me these past years. In fact, I wrote about it yesterday, about the biggest thing I've learned in you know experiencing seasons of depression is walk. Mm-hmm. You have to, there's one word, you yeah. walk. Like you yeah. just keep yeah. on going because it's not that I can avoid it coming. It's here. Now what do I do? <laughs> I yeah. have to walk through yeah. it and trust that. So as uh, Jim Neuheiser once asked me, he said, has God ever left you there? Mm-hmm. And the answer was no, <laughs> he hasn't. So we've got to walk, yeah. walk forward to walk out uh, of the dark. And so, well, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up our time today, but I want to give you the opportunity to talk to the audience because there may be someone listening to this episode who currently suffers in the ways that we've been talking about. Maybe they're afraid somehow that their faith isn't real because they're going through depression or they're terrified because they really do sense that, you know, that spiritual depression, that sense of abandonment by God. And that is really scaring them or frightening them that they would even have that type of experience. What would you say to that person to give them courage to face today? Yeah, one day is at a mm-hmm. time. I would just want to say you're not alone. You hear Christine uh, sharing her story. You hear me sharing mine. You, you hear us uh, indicating that God has given us multiple stories in, in the Bible that give us fellow friends and uh, language for the thing that we're going through. And I would say that your ongoing willingness to lay all of this at the Lord's feet shows not a lack of faith, but true faith, actually a stronger faith. It would take, it, it takes more faith to do that than it would take someone else who's, who doesn't have this experience. Um, and that is real faith. It, and the Lord Jesus is a man of sorrows. 
And his teaching is that we weep with those who weep. And so his whole posture and disposition toward you is to hold you, to be with you. And it is to remind us that Job's friends had it right when they just tore their clothes and sat in the ashes. And that's what you, we long for for you, that you would know that you are not alone, that there are people with torn clothes in the ashes with you, and that the Lord God himself who created you is not surprised, he's not somewhere else, he's not indifferent, he's not trite, he's not a simpleton, he's not a fool, he is wise and he loves you. And we uh, would pray that God would sustain you day by day and that he would bring a time of refreshing so that you could feel again the sunrise in your soul. And that would be our prayer. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Zach, for those terrifically encouraging words. Um, I really do hope that if there is someone listening to today's show and they are struggling in this way, that there was something here in this episode that really struck a chord with you and that God was able to give you um, comfort and encouragement and perhaps even some clarity on this season of depression that you're walking through. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Zach's books and other helpful resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.